hope everyone is well. And uh, so, does anyone have uh, anything, anything they would like to comment or any questions they would like to ask? Yes. I don't know if you want to do this a little later, because it may be a long-drawn answer. But I'm interested in knowing a little bit about the jhanas. About the jhanas? Yeah. I don't know much about them. Well, I think that may be appropriate since uh, that is one place that these concentration practices uh, can lead. Mm-hmm. Um, jhana means absorption, and uh, I think we all know what it means to be really absorbed into something and you cease to uh, be aware of almost anything else. And that is basically uh, what it means. But it's an absorption that's entered into uh, when you've developed a very deep level of concentration. And so uh, that's reflected in, in just how completely uh, you are removed from anything else. Um, it is. It, it can be described as uh, your awareness sinking completely into whatever the object is that you're you're paying attention to, taking as your object of meditation. Uh, Or another way that uh, you can uh, describe it that uh, is as though the object of meditation completely fills your awareness, so there's really no room for anything else. Mm -hmm. And these jhanas can be entered into with different degrees of depth of concentration. And so there, uh, there is a light kind of jhana where you uh, uh, you still have uh, you still have sensory awareness. You're just not paying attention to the objects of the senses. Uh, more or less like what you'd experience if you were extremely absorbed in uh, some activity that was interesting and you might be oblivious to somebody calling your name until they repeated it several times. Um, There's still a little bit of room for the occasional thought to arise in these light jhanas. Um, It's very subtle, uh, but still uh, there is a presence of it, and there's still very much the sense of <coughs> of object and observer, although perhaps uh, with all of the jhanas that's there. But uh, at first, because you're you're so completely absorbed in the object, it may seem as though there, there's no distinction between. Uh, the observer and the object, but uh, the more you repeat it, the more you you are aware that yes, there's there's still a there's still that dualistic division there. Uh, 
the deepest jhanas, and if you enter jhana when you are in a very deep state of concentration, uh, you're, you're pretty much oblivious to anything but the uh, strongest and loudest stimuli. So you won't really be aware of sounds at all. And you won't really be aware of bodily sensations at all. As a matter of fact, most ordinary awareness of body sensations uh, disappears in the stages of deepening concentration even prior to entering the deepest jhanas. Uh, You have a, a sense of having a body, but you don't have any normal sensations. And um, you're so withdrawn from the senses. And as a matter of fact, that, that is sort of the, uh, what defines uh, a deep jhana, is that the mind is withdrawn from the senses. You're so withdrawn from the senses that um, somebody might come up and touch you, or uh, a fly might land on your face or something like that, and you wouldn't really be aware of it at all be completely uh, unaware of it. It's not like a trance, uh, because your senses still do work. You know, if, if somebody, if there was a really loud noise next to you, you would come right out of the jhana. Or if somebody came and, you know, shook your shoulder or something like that, you would, yeah, it, it, it would bring you out of the jhana. So it's just, it's basically what it is, a very deep state of single-pointed concentration. Now, there are four different jhanas that are uh, described in detail and defined uh, in, uh, in the sutras and in traditional Buddhist practice. And then from the fourth jhana, there are a further four states that a person can enter into. Uh, and sometimes those are referred to as jhanas as well. So sometimes you might hear people make reference to eight jhanas. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, the jhanas are distinguished from each other by uh, what are called the jhana factors and which jhana factors are present and which are absent in each one. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll go through them. What you'll see, though, is that they are a progressively finer and finer degree of single-pointed concentration. So the jhana factors that are present in the first jhana, the first one that you enter, uh, are directed and sustained attention, uh, Piti, which can be translated as joy, it's sometimes sometimes translated as rapture, and I'll explain why. And uh, happiness or pleasure, and of course single pointedness. Single pointedness is present in all of the jhanas. Sometimes it's listed as a jhana factor. Sometimes it's not listed separately. It's just assumed since it's present in all of them that it's not important in terms of the the defining and distinguishing between them. The, you're familiar with directed and sustained attention. 
you direct your attention to the meditation object and you try to sustain it there. Um, and in the first jhana, uh, it, there is a subtle movement of the mind. So even though uh, when you're not in jhana right now, you're, you're doing your practice, and it may seem to you as though uh, you have periods when your mind is is completely fixed on the meditation object, there still is a subtle going into and out of uh, uh, conscious awareness of that uh, that object. And so that's the sense in which there is still directed and sustained attention, because there is still a, a meditation object. Um, now, the meditation object you enter into a jhana with will make a lot of difference in terms of the kind of directed and sustained attention that you experience. And it's also re- related to the depth of the jhana. Um, you can enter a jhana, in the light jhanas, using a physical sensation as a meditation object. In the deep jhanas, the mind is withdrawn from the senses, and so for it to be a deep jhana, you can't really use a physical sensation. So you have to use uh, some sort of mental image, uh, and that can take very many forms. If you start out using the breath as your meditation object, the sensations of the breath as you have been, um, at some point that will take on a, a, a very abstract quality and you will no longer really be attending to the sensations of the breath. You will be attending to the, uh, the mental image or the mental counterpart that which is produced in the mind in response to the sensations. And because the breath uh, is cyclically repeating, what it is like, have you ever looked at an oscilloscope screen? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say oscilloscope screen? No. no. That's too bad because it's a really, <laughs> it's, it's a really good thing, you know. Uh, Maybe you've seen one in, in a movie or a television show or something. It's a screen where some kind of a waveform just keeps repeating over and over again going across the screen. Okay. And um, each, each new wave is imprinted on the last one, and the last one doesn't really go away. So when you look at it, you know, you'll see sort of uh, if, if one wave is slightly different than another one, you'll see them superimposed on each other, but they're almost the same, but not quite. And that's sort of what, like the, that's sort of like what the mental image of uh, the. It's one quality of what the mental counterpart image is of the the cycling of the sensations of the breath, and that they're they're very abstract. But you've been for who knows how many thousands of hours, been observing these sensations of the breath, and so there is a, a recognition pattern set up in, in your mind, in your brain, and it just triggers that. And that becomes your meditation object rather than the actual sensations itself. And so that allows you to enter uh, 
this degree of absorption with your mind fully withdrawn from the senses. You don't need to pay attention to the sensations at the nose anymore. You just pay attention to really the reaction of your brain and your mind to the sensations that arise. And it can take many forms and it's difficult to describe and different people describe it in different ways. But uh, it's called a patibhaga nimitta and that means basically means mental counterpart sign. Um, Another way of entering a deep jhana where your mental object has to be something that is not connected to the physical senses is that very often a light will arise. You'll have an appearance of light. Uh, Maybe some of you have had that occasionally when you're meditating, appearance of light. Uh, you can develop that into a nimitta. Mm-hmm. And it can be a very bright light that through through practice. And basically what you do at that point is you abandon the breath and you substitute the, uh, the light as the meditation object. Um, if, if you're using the breath nimitta, then it's fairly easy to see how directed and sustained attention is still a factor in the jhana, because every breath cycle, you know, it's it's constantly repeating itself and it's constantly changing, and because it's constantly changing, there is the the subtle directing of the attention from from the past to the present, past to the present, you know, because it's constantly changing in front of you. And uh, so the directing and sustaining is there. With a, a light nimitta, uh, it's more uh, it's it's more as a, a subtle vibration, like a, a, a flickering or a, a vibration of it, and the attention is renewed in uh, in every moment, over and over again. And in the way that I learn, the reference of, and, and there are many different versions of jhanas and the way they're described and explained, but the, the method that I learn, um, the, uh, this nimitta as an object is only used in the first jhana. Uh, and so in the subsequent jhanas, you let go of it. Now in the definition of the second jhana, it said that there is the uh, the pity, joy, rapture, however you want to translate it, and uh, the pleasure, but the directed and sustained attention are no longer there. And in the method I follow, the reason they're no longer there is you're no longer uh, you're no longer using that nimitta as an object. But there are some uh, jhana practices which I actually haven't done. I should get around to doing them sometime where you uh, enter these higher uh, levels of jhana, second, third, and fourth, and retain the nimitta. And in those cases, I'm not exactly what they're referring to uh, when they say that uh, directed and sustained attention is not there. Mm-hmm. Okay. The uh, The... Uh, other jhana factor that uh, or, or that I need to explain to you is the one called piti. 
And uh, the word actually means joy. And joy is a mental state. When you develop meditative joy, it comes with a lot of other things, like uh, a variety of physical sensations and uh, light and sometimes sound. And all of these taken together are what the word Piti refers to when it's used as a technical term in meditation and, uh, and with reference to the jhanas. Although it technically means joy, and really the most important feature of Piti is the feeling of joy. Although the first manifestations that a meditator will have of joy are feelings of uh, bodily sensations, including energy sensations. Mm -hmm moving, uh, if you uh, at the skin, the surface of the body, feeling, feel them moving up uh, and sometimes down the spine, feel them moving out from the core of the body out to the, uh, the periphery uh, and back again. And in the course of, of developing PT, there may be all kinds of other odd and unusual sensations, uh, heat, cool, uh, hair standing on end, uh, itching, tickling, uh, feeling like breezes, uh, a breeze is blowing. You know, the, the 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 list is is very extensive of the sensations that are precursors to uh, this fine electrical vibratory energy sort of sensation, and that is. And many people accompanied by light. Your eyes, if your eyes are closed, if you meditate with your eyes open, you don't have this experience. If you meditate with your eyes closed, though, you become aware of light. And when it becomes fully developed, it's like it's like behind your eyelids is this space that's filled with light. It seems to come from everywhere. Uh, may be extremely pronounced in some people. May be more subtle than others. Another aspect of PT is sound, that you hear um, uh, like a buzzing or a ringing. Uh, for some people it's like hearing music in the distance and it's very pleasant. For other people it's uh, more like the buzzing of bees or, or and it may be, or cicadas or something. And it may not really be that pleasant. Mm -hmm. But as these... Uh, as these continue to develop, then eventually, uh, if, if it, eventually what you end up with is a very joyful state of mind combined with uh, uh, happiness, happiness of the mind, and also a pleasurable sensation in the body. The body is pervaded with uh, a, a very pleasant feeling. That is not. And this happens in spite of the fact that you're no longer really aware of, you know, the pressure of your body on the cushion or your clothes or all of these other things you're no longer aware of, but you still have this sense of body awareness and it's, it's just filled with uh, pleasure. It's very pleasurable. Uh, and so piti and sukha are the other uh, uh, jhana factors. Piti referring to joy, which is a state of mind, and it tends to be energetic. 
whereas sukha refers to the pleasure and the happiness. It's much more contented and it's much more peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to explain what I mean when I say joy is a state of mind, um, you know, we've all experienced joy and we have some idea, but in our language, the way we use it, joy, pleasure, happiness, you know, uh, what's the distinction between them? So, speaking technically in terms of the way we're using the word here, and this is important to understand because joy is present in the second jhana as is happiness and pleasure. But in the third jhana, the joy, you've abandoned the joy, but there's still the pleasure and the happiness. So you have to understand the distinction between them for it to make any sense to explain the difference between the second and the third jhanas. Mm -hmm. So, what, when we say joy and we mean a state of mind, it is a state of mind that is inclined to uh, experience the pleasant uh, and to notice the pleasant. See, it, when you are in a joyful state of mind in the world, um, things that are mildly pleasant as sensations or mildly attractive or somewhat beautiful seem very beautiful, very attractive, very pleasant. Things which might normally seem to be more or less neutral in terms of their feeling tone are pleasant as well. And things that would normally be seen as mildly unpleasant are regarded as more or less neutral. And things that might be strongly unpleasant are regarded as mildly unpleasant. So it's an orientation, it's a mental state that orients the mind to subjectively perceive things in a more pleasant, less unpleasant way. It also affects, uh, in, in your ordinary experience of joy, it's a mental state where you notice the things that are good and beautiful and pleasant and happy. And you tend to disregard and filter out the things that are, are not so much that. So you see what I mean? Is It's a state of mind. It doesn't matter what you're paying attention to. The state of mind uh, has this effect. It, it, it influences what you pay attention to. You walk into a particular room and your mind will, uh, in this state, will cause you to be more observant of, more aware of, as I say, the positive things and to respond with more positive affect to those. And when there's a problem or things like that, it doesn't bother you very much. It's just the opposite. The opposite of, of joy is uh, uh, is uh, depression, despair, unhappiness. And, and of course, yeah, all the things I said, it applies just the opposite. You, Everything is worse than it usually is. Even pleasant things are meaningless or, or even, even annoying. And uh, you notice what's wrong. You don't notice what's right. You know what I mean? That's what I mean by state of mind. So you can distinguish between the state of mind and the feelings of pleasure and happiness that, that the state of mind of joy produces. 
So whenever you have joy, you have happiness. But you can can you see that it's possible to have the happiness without the joy? You have the pleasure without the joy. And this is what happens in uh, in the progression through the jhanas. In the first jhana, you have your meditation object, your experience, your mental state is joy. Uh, and there is both uh, mental happiness and, and, and bodily pleasure present. Mm-hmm. Okay, And you become totally absorbed in your meditation object and you, you enjoy this. To move into the second jhana, you take the state of joy of the mind as your meditation object. You discard the nimitta and just focus entirely on the piti. And take that as the meditation object. Uh, and just, uh, okay, I'll come back to this. Uh, I was just going to insert something here, but now let me go ahead here. Okay, so you disregard the nimitta, you take the mental state of joy, you, you become very clear as to what it is so that you can focus your attention on it, and then you enter absorption with that. And entering into absorption is... It's a, it's a little bit of a skill. It's not too difficult when you when you, when you prepared your mind when the conditions are right. Uh, like I say, it's like you take the object and you just sink totally into it, or you just allow it to completely fill your awareness and become absorbed with it. So once you can clearly discriminate in terms of your attention the mental state of joy and focus your attention on that. And you can enter into the second jhana. And of course, there's the happiness and pleasure that accompanies it. But notice what's happened is you're attending to a mental state rather than a specific object of attention. You know, whether, it was, whether it's a sensation or whether it's a feeling or whether it's, uh, you know, In the sense I mean feeling. Whether it's a sensation or whether it's a a mental object, uh, there is still this, you know, it's an object that you're focusing on. But now you've done something different. you're, You're taking the state, your mental state as object. And that's the second jhana. Now, the third jhana, to enter that, is you shift your attention away from that mental state of joy. And that mental state of joy, by the way, it involves a lot of energy. As it was developing, you experienced a lot of energy in your body. That tends to subside and turn into uh, the, the mental aspect of joy. But your mind's very energized by it. And it's rather exciting. But it's also, after a while, it gets tiring. And when you have been practicing the second jhana, experiencing joy and happiness, it becomes possible to make the distinction between the joy and the happiness. Because you can see that the joy has a certain agitation to it. And the happiness and pleasure have a calmness and peacefulness that you're attracted to. And so to enter the third jhana, what you do is you set aside the joy and you focus entirely on this more peaceful, contented uh, quality of the happiness and the pleasure and take that as the object. And you, you enter into the third jhana, which is considerably more serene.
Then what happens in the, in the fourth jhana is that you abandon even the pleasure and the happiness and you uh, you focus on equanimity. Actually, it will spontaneously develop because a person, when they practice the third jhana, they are experiencing this, the, the pleasure and the happiness. And at first, it, it's, it's quite serene. But as they practice, they become aware that there's an even more peaceful state and it becomes more and more attractive to them. And so then they're able to uh, set aside the, the, the happiness and the pleasure and take and cultivate equanimity. And so the jhana factor that replaces uh, pleasure uh, when you go from the third jhana to the fourth jhana is equanimity. You cultivate equanimity in the third jhana and when it's strong enough, you abandon pleasure and the the jhana factor that's present in the fourth jhana is equanimity. And in in the fourth jhana, in so much as you have, uh, you know, you're, you're aware of something, the consciousness is present, what you're conscious of is your own mind. The mind itself is the, uh, is the object of the contemplation and the meditation. So you can see how going through this is progressively becoming more and more single-pointed. It's also, you're dissecting these layers of your normal mental experience. Your mental experience is normally dominated by the objects that your mind takes and holds. Whether we're talking daily life or whether you're talking uh, meditation, it tends to be dominated by uh, by the objects of attention. Conscious awareness has an object of conscious awareness. And mental state and feelings of pleasure and happiness and things like this are, so to speak, at a deeper level. So in the first jhana, you disregard... when you uh, Well, in the first jhana, you disregard sensory input. We're talking deep jhanas here. You disregard the senses. So all of the five physical senses, you know, you let go of that, and you have an object, but it's a mental object only. It's a very refined mental object. So you've disregarded the outer, the outermost layer. Now you disregard, and moving from the first to the second jhana, now you peel away the other kind of object, the mental object. You peel that away from the onion of your mind, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, now there is the the state of the mind and the the, uh, what's called the vedana, the the feeling of of pleasure and happiness. There is a there is a sense of bodily pleasure, as I said, even though your normal bodily sensations are gone. There is this mind-generated pleasure that accompanies the happiness. And uh, so that's... You're, you're at the level of just the Vedanas. So then 
you disregard that, and then you're just basically in the in uh, the deepest mental state where you're not producing any thoughts, you're not producing any emotions, any feelings, or anything like that. It's just um, it's the experience is dominated just by the uh, light of conscious awareness, and the simile that's used to describe it tries to capture that in saying it's like being completely covered with a white sheet if you can if you can follow the significance of that it's um, conscious awareness now there is still a sense of being located in space and of the uh, of, of mind and, and consciousness as having a certain substantiality. So all of these jhanas are described as jhanas with form because they still partake of the form realm. They're not part of the sense realm, but it's part of the form, part of the form realm. The higher four jhanas are called formless realm. And Maybe I'll explain that in a moment. Let's go back and talk about jhanas in general again here. I said there were light jhanas. And in the deep jhanas, in the first jhana, your object is a, uh, a subtle mental object that has arisen as a result of your concentration. And you take piti, uh, the joy as the as the primary object in the second jhana. Now, in the lighter jhanas, instead you take a physical sensation uh, as your object entering the first jhana, and the physical sensation is one that has arisen as a part of the piti. The piti hasn't fully developed yet and it's accompanied by a lot of physical sensation, including energetic and electrical sensations and the pleasurable body feelings. And so you can enter, uh, you can enter light jhanas by taking those, those kinds of physical sensations as the object. So it sounds a bit different here. We say in the light jhanas, when you enter the first jhana, you're actually taking piti as your primary object. But what you're doing is you're taking sensations associated with PT as as your object. And then once again, in the light jhanas, as you proceed to deeper and deeper levels, it's still the same process of refining your focus, re- mm-hmm. setting aside what you were uh, focused on previously. So that in the first jhana, the sensations produced by the not really mature PT is your object, is your meditation mm-hmm. object. In the second jhana, it's the feeling of joy itself, even though it's not quite as strong and fully developed as it would be somebody in, in, in a jeep jhana, it's still the same object. And for the third uh, of the light jhanas, same thing. You refocus in on the aspect of pleasure, the more contented, peaceful, quiet aspect of pleasure. And, and then for the fourth jhana, it's the total letting go of all of this and just being in the place of, of uh, awareness. Would that, would that place be the same for the, light, for the fourth light jhana and the, and, the, and the fourth deep jhana? 
Basically, it is, yes. But the depth of concentration with which you're experiencing it is uh, is considerably less. Mm-hmm. So rather than being aware of the mind as such, you're mostly just aware of this uh, really profound stillness and uh, peacefulness and calm. So. I, I, sorry. No, just, just one more question. Um, well, actually, it's, it's two. Um, I, I see a good amount of overlap between these and, and, the, and the various levels in the progression of uh, concentration, right? Um, yeah. how, how are they different? I and mean, what, what is the difference between them? Well, it, it's an interesting thing about all of these things is the same patterns repeat over and over again in, in, in all of this. Uh, and so, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, the light jhanas uh, appear very much uh, as the development through the 8th, ninth, and 10th stages, uh, or 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th stages uh, in the development of, of, of deep concentration that is not fully absorptive. And uh, they do pretty much a, a correspond to those. As, as a matter of fact, uh, you can enter into the light jhanas any uh, time you're able to reach the seventh stage, which I described last night. When you're in the seventh stage, you can enter the light jhanas. And this was, this was something that I learned fairly recently and I think is a wonderful discovery that uh, I'd never really done these light jhanas and didn't really appreciate them and uh, or understand the significance of them. But you can use the light jhanas to help you further uh, develop your uh, concentration by just simply practicing them. Because by entering into that absorption, uh, well, all of the things that we're doing are conditioning the mind and training the mind. So, you know, anything you do it's taking in the right direction repeatedly is going to have a strong training effect on the mind. So entering the light jhanas can make it easier for you to enter into uh, the deeper stages of concentration that are necessary in order to achieve the deep jhanas. But yeah, I follow. It, it's like it's the same pattern, and I think that's been. I think sometimes that's been very confusing for people trying to trying to interpret these, especially reading things that are written in ancient languages that nobody uses and they've been translated uh, and the people translating them aren't necessarily meditators that know the meanings and so you know you can say well that sounds a lot like that and what what is the difference so but there is a difference in technique it seems like there there is there is a difference in uh, there are very real differences in the state your mind is in and um, the activity of your mind that is central to um, central to the transitions. So when you're developing through the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth stages of concentration development, you're always staying with your meditation object. Mm-hmm. And PT and sukha arise, but you don't, you know, 
you you just let them be, and you let them develop, and you let them develop to their full and maximum strength. In the eighth stage, that's really where you're letting the pity develop and become strong, and it's very exciting and agitating. In the ninth stage, you're getting used to it so that it begins to calm down. It's not so energetic, and there is uh, uh, the, the, the pleasure... But the, there, there's less agitation and more pleasure. Sounds really a whole lot like going from second jhana to third jhana. And then when you go from the ninth stage to the tenth stage, you, uh, through familiarity with the piti, you know, uh, there comes tranquility and equanimity. Well, tranquility and equanimity sure sounds a lot like fourth jhana, right? And it is a lot like fourth jhana. Mm-hmm. But the difference between that and the deep jhanas is that you still, even though you uh, are not interested in it all and you're not particularly aware of, of sensations, uh, there is still a little bit of awareness there. The mind's not fully withdrawn from the senses. If you develop to the tenth stage and enter jhana, the mind's completely withdrawn from the senses. So. That's, that's a very significant difference between the two. The other is that throughout this, you have a meditation object, which, which is sensory, the sensations of the, of the breath. Or if you're using some other object, it would be that object all the way through when you're going through stages 7 to 10. In the deep jhana, though, you have switched to this nimitta, this... Uh, so, uh, and, and the nimitta appears in the tenth stage. Now, if we look at the light jhanas, the light jhanas are really very much like working your way through stage seven, eight, nine, and ten. They sound a lot like it, they're very much like it. And that's why I see the value of it, is you practice the light jhanas, they are, I think, a very powerful way of working your way through stages 7, 8, 9, and 10 and preparing yourself to enter into a very deep jhanas. Where once the nimitta has appeared, then you can abandon the, uh, uh, the sen- uh, sensations. And by this time, your concentration is so strong that when you absorb into that nimitta, you just completely withdraw from from sensation. And so that's precisely the difference. I mean, even in a sense, in a sense, you could almost say, well, the light jhanas are are really the same as those stages. I think the reason that I would say they're different is that when I, I learned the light jhanas, you are really absorbing into the particular things you're taking as an object there rather than staying with a meditation object and letting those qualities develop on their own. And that's, that's the big difference. That's the and difference. it's a significant difference. That's the difference in the deeper jhanas, is that you're fully absorbed? In the, in the deeper jhanas, well, you're, you're, you're absorbed in both light and deep jhanas, but you're much more deeply absorbed in the deep jhanas which is most apparent in the fact that your mind has completely withdrawn from bodily sensation and sounds. Right? And, and the light jhanas traditionally you still use the same 
meditation object that you've been Well, using? I guess, hey, in the light jhanas, I, I actually don't know what other variations of light jhana practice there may be. I, I learned uh, uh, about a year ago from Lee Brasington, and no, it's not. In, in the case, in, in the method that he taught, which go, comes from Ayakima, too, so if you want to read more about it. Lee hasn't written any books, but his teacher, Ayakima, has written a couple of books that you uh, might find interesting to look into. Um, but in that particular method, you, you abandon the breath as an object, and you take the bodily sensations produced by piti as your object for first jhana, which, of course, in in the seventh stage, uh, uh, you wouldn't do that. And then, uh, to enter in the second jhana, you focus on on the uh, the pleasure and the joy and the happiness. Uh, so uh, that's not what you in, you in in all of the stages seven, eight, nine, and ten. You stay with the meditation object, and so that's a that's very much a difference. It's mimicking what you do in the deep jhanas, because in the deep jhanas you abandon the nimitta after the first jhana, you know, and so it is. Uh, and then you take the the uh, piti as the object in the second jhana. So in the light jhanas, where you uh, abandon the bodily sensations produced by the piti in favor of the the joy and happiness and pleasure. That's very similar to what you do in the deep jhanas, but you're just not as completely withdrawn. Mm-hmm. So that's why I would say the light jhanas are, although they're very similar, they are still different than practicing the strict samatha practice through the tenth stage. That and that is specifically the difference. Okay. I was thinking of, of having similar sensations in a really totally different meditation practice. And I'm not sure how it relates, because it was a, like a they call it shikin taza and zen. Mm-hmm. When you're just paying, you don't really have a meditation object; it's just yes. whatever is happening. Mm-hmm. And it's done with the eyes open. But there was that same progression of the body sensations, mm-hmm. and then the feelings of joy, and then beyond that, this, these feelings yes. of real deep clarity and real calmness. But at the same time, the sensations were still there. Mm-hmm. Like the eyes were open, and one could still there was still the sensations, but they weren't prominent. You know, they were sort of mm-hmm. secondary, but they were still there. Yeah, uh, and and I have not done that practice, mm-hmm. but based on the different practices I, that I've done and and what I heard and read and otherwise know about a whole variety of different practices. If you get into these over and over again, you're going to find these patterns of similarity. And well, big surprise! It's the same human mind being cultivated <laughs> in the same. You know, there's each method. There's going to be differences in what you do and differences in what you experience as a result of it. But you can expect the same pattern of development to take place, just from what you've said here, and that confirms what actually uh, the. A lot of my understanding of Shikantaza comes from a great big thick book called Zen and the Brain. Oh, and it, the, the actual descriptions of the meditation itself are little brief things interspersed between huge amounts of other information. 
but it corresponds to. It sounds to me like Shikantaza has a lot in common with these light jhanas, the way that I learned them from uh, Lee Brasington, and and that corresponds to what you said. That yeah, you're still aware of sensations. You know, it's a they're they're just. you're just barely aware of them, but they're still there. Yeah, they're there, but they're not like yeah. in the foreground. Yeah, and I think so. It, it seems very similar to me in that regard. Hmm. And so I see, you know, when I look at these things, always what I see is the similarities, and it's really interesting. When I get in a conversation with somebody else who's practiced in a different way, mm-hmm. and all they see is the differences. <laughs> and, and how how different? And, you know, it's amazing to hear somebody who's done. Samatha practice, say, Zen, I'm not sure that's even really meditation. You know? <laughs> that's funny because then like, people say the same thing about jhanas. They're like, oh, that's like I, I know, yeah. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> I didn't say it's so, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm just, my, my nature is, uh, I, I guess, what guides me to be that. But I believe that what I'm saying is genuinely there. I'm not, I'm not imposing similarities that aren't there. I'm saying what's there. Mm-hmm. But I think that is the orientation of my mind is to discover this, discover the similarities. And I think other people's minds, and it's not a fault, it's just a difference, mm-hmm. is to really focus on the differences. Mm-hmm. So. That's interesting. Even in the Christian, Christian tradition, Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. Arviva, wrote Interior Castle, I don't know what century she was, 15th? Uh, uh, 16th, 17th. Oh, okay. Teresa? Okay. Well, anyway, she she wrote about the withdrawals from the senses Mm -hmm. as you go inward. And I don't remember the details of her journey or her Mm -hmm. description, but she... It, you know, yeah. I think that it's you know the truth. It's the it's what mm-hmm. happens. It's our brains. It's you know. That, that's what I think too. Teresa of Villa, John of the Cross, and I I think that they're coming from a completely different conceptual framework than Buddhist teachers. But if you look at what they're talking about experientially, you know, uh, you can see it's the same. And it really disappoints me when I'll hear a Buddhist say. Well, I don't think that's really. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it is, huh. but it's the same brain. We're the same human beings. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's a, a lot yeah. of it's got to be the same. <laughs> yeah. Just one one last question about that. Um, given given the the aims of Buddhism, uh, mm-hmm. the cessation of suffering. Why? Why do we want to go to, into a, a state of absorption? How does ah, that? Yeah. How does that assist us in the cessation of suffering? And also connected with with also with the ideas of Buddhism. If, if one of our purposes is to become more and more mindful of of, of the here and now, why do we want to absorb ourselves? Okay. And, you know. Yeah. Very good question. I'm I'm glad you asked. Okay. Um, and there are, are several different reasons. Now, which one to start with? Well, one reason is that to it, it is an insight in its own right when you discover the degree of joy happiness, pleasure, and tranquility 
that originates within the mind itself, independent of anything external to you. That is because we naturally have associated uh, happiness and uh, uh, pleasure and suffering and pain as being things that we experience from the outside. So it is profoundly illuminating uh, just to know that that's not really where joy, pleasure, and happiness come from. They're generated by the mind. Uh, and, and maybe that's probably the least important thing. You discover that actually the first time you discover PT long before John is, you become aware of that. And part of the excitement of it is, wow, you know, uh, that you can have so much joy and happiness and it has nothing to do with anything or anyone else. You know, it just comes completely from inside. Uh, but to be able to access that too in yourself, that is a wonderful gift. And that, that is a benefit. And that is useful. But when you practice the jhanas, it has a tremendous carryover. If you sit in jhana for an hour when you get up, it's like it just... It's not like all of the focused awareness disappears, and it's not like all the tranquility and the joy and the happiness disappear. They stay. They, and they play an important role in how you are going to live and experience the world between when you get up from the meditation and when you sit down for your next meditation. That can contribute enormously for your ability to practice in every other way, to practice uh, uh, virtue and keep precepts and practice the perfections and to study and to cope with the problems that arise in life and everything else. So it's, it's tremendously beneficial in that. It's also, and this is really the more important aspect of this, it allows you to practice mindfulness throughout the rest of the time that you're not sitting. To sit in jhana periodically, or even to approach jhana and to sit in the deeper states of concentration uh, that, uh, uh, that you know, when, when you've progressed to the higher stages. You get up and you can practice, <coughs> you can practice the uh, four applications of mindfulness so well. You can be mindful of your body, of your sensations, of your experiences as they arise and pass away. You can be mindful of the feelings that arise in reaction to them, of the mental states that they produce and how the mental states arise and pass away, and of your mind in the process of creating the experience of your reality. So. You know, you can be extremely mindful as a result of jhana practice. So that's another benefit. Now, jhana practice itself, I think, probably should always be used as a kind of insight practice. Um, by going into progressively more and more single-pointed uh focus on what you are in essence, this constant conscious experiencing mind because that's what you are. Mm -hmm. 
this is a, a voyage of exploration and discovery of the nature of the mind. And uh, I, I, do you know the name Sariputra? He's one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. And he he achieved the insights and, and all of the stages of enlightenment through jhana practice. And there is one particular sutra that uh, in which the Buddha describes how Sariputra practiced. He's talking to someone else. Uh, the name of the sutra, it's sutra number 111 of the Majjhima Nikaya. And it's very appropriate that it's number 111 because the name of it is one by one. And the Buddha describes how in practicing the jhanas, Sariputra examined one by one before he entered the jhana, as he entered the jhana, when he left the jhana, one by one, what was present and what was absent, what arose and what passed away. So it is a practice of mindful awareness that gives rise to insight, to deep, powerful insight. So that's the other way to use the jhanas. I think jhanas used only for the sake of having uh, pleasant experiences and only for the sake of getting up from meditation and going around being a a beaming uh, uh, holy man, which is a way that they have been used. You know, you sit in jhana and you, you enjoy bliss for a few hours a day and because of the carryover effect, you go around as this, uh, uh, you know, saint, and everybody thinks you're a saint. The problem with that is if you quit practicing jhanas, you revert to being pretty much like you were before. <laughs> uh, and things happen. You know, you get sick and you can't practice the jhanas and you can't sustain it. You know, or you get old and start to lose your mental capabilities or things like that. So. Jhana can do a tremendous job of mimicking enlightenment. You can enjoy a whole lot of bliss, and you can function like a pretty high, highly evolved being between jhana, sits of jhana practice. But I think that's the downfall of jhana is to be used mm-hmm. in that way. But if with a little bit of understanding and guidance, you don't do that. You use it as an insight practice in its own right. Uh, you take advantage of the mindfulness, uh, the power of mindfulness that affords you. You you use the uh, uh, joy and equanimity and and tranquility that the jhana gives you to purify uh, your virtue and practice the other perfections and, and so forth. So. Thank you. Thank you. So that, yeah, I, I think that that's a very important question because uh, I, there, there's so much controversy around the jhanas and uh, there's so much bad mouthing of the jhanas in certain circles. But it comes, it's just, you know, it's, it's always that case, isn't it? When somebody's running something down, it's ignorance. They don't know. You know, it's talking from a place of uh, judgment that's not based on experience. lot of talk about higher stages here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just, um, so, and, and part of the idea is, is, is when you get to the fourth stage, you're just obse- 
observing the mind directly, right? I mean, that's that seems to be where the, the, the three insights really, that's where they really come out of is. Yes. Is that stage? You've gone to a deep <laughs> level of the mind where all kinds of mysterious stuff resides. Um, you know, there's the level of the mind that corresponds to our uh, ordinary experience of reality. And then there's the deeper level that's called the, the, the realms of, of power and, and, and mystery. That's why fourth jhana is associated with <coughs> the development of the the cities, the supernatural powers. Uh, the fourth jhana is the uh, uh, the basis for developing the the uh, uh, recollection of past lives. So. You, you're, you're getting in touch. I mean, it doesn't automatically happen with the fourth jhana. But a person who can practice in the fourth jhana can make a determination to uh, do these other developments and, and, and go very deeply in those. So when, you're, when, the mind, when the mind itself is the object of your contemplation and there is uh, no discursive thought activity taking place, just the simple observation, then you can uh, can penetrate to some quite deep and wonderful things. And uh, it's achieved in a totally different way, and it's not fourth jhana, but a a shamanic practitioner who journeys to the other worlds uh, is basically accessing the same level of mind that you come to in uh, fourth jhana experience. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of potential for insight and achieving enlightenment there. So maybe uh, and a last uh, I know you had a last question and then let's see if we can get a little meditation in before the evening's over. I should rather talk all night. <laughs> I shouldn't give you the opportunity. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Just Terry. a short question. I just today in meditating experienced both at the same time these feelings of joy and feelings of physical pain that were kind of intense. Mm-hmm. And they were both at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. My leg was hurting. That's very, very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was just curious about now, the, the joy is a, a, a product of the you know, the concentration and the unification of your mind and the skill in staying focused. And sometimes when that happens, I don't know if this is what happened to you, but sometimes uh, the you get to the place of joy because you've got a pain which you are deliberately ignoring. It's not so bad that you have to take it as an object. So it challenges you to become more focused and that pushes you into the place where the joy arises. But it is possible to have joy and pain at the same time. Uh, in I think the joy feelings came first, and then I didn't want them to go away, so they didn't enjoy oh, okay. so, at the same time. So, okay. <laughs> That's kind so, of how it happened. So, it, 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 okay, it wasn't that the pain helped you get into it, it's rather it came later. Yeah. yeah. Now, what what will happen, uh, you know, in, in the progress according to these stages, uh, 
there's a stage where you pretty much get overall bodily pain, and then the joy you experience, then it's not going to interfere with your joy after you've reached that stage. Uh-huh. The joy that comes up before that it won't necessarily be uh, separate from bodily pain. And, and sometimes, uh, and, and actually the joy you experience is very vulnerable to being lost due to uh, all kinds of distractions, one of which is pain. Mm-hmm. But, There is, there is a stage where where uh, you, you basically cease to have any of those uncomfortable sensations unless something happens you know I mean a, a physical injury will produce pain that penetrates that mm-hmm. <laughs> okay well take a minute to stretch a little bit before you sit down and you know,